Welcome, or 2017. I always forget the year. The years keep shifting. This is our 10th keep year. This yeah. is our 10th year, yeah, people. It is. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah. welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Um, our guest today is Joanna Phillips, who is Associate Professor of Neurological Surgery and Pathology, and she's Director of the Brain Tumor Research Center Tissue Bank at UCSF Medical Center. Hi, Joanna. Oh, hey. <laughs> we're going for a voice break. Yeah. Okay, okay. We're constantly nervous about our bad sound quality, so we have to project, project here today. Hello. <laughs> um, her research is focused on how um, invading brain tumor cells interact with components of the tumor microenvironment, and she uses in vivo and ex vivo model systems in her in her work. Um, it's Her work is centered on an important scale that looks at components as well as the molecular biomechanical interactions between elements of, of the microenvironment, including microglia, microphages, reactive astrocytes, and the extracellular matrix, all of which are broadly important patterning and development of the CNS, as well as in pathological states like cancer, which is, is your focus. So around the room, we have, again, Asif Maruf, your, our MVP of this past month. Fidel Santamaria. Hi. And Charlie Wilson, as always. And Annie Lynn. Hi. Hi. Annie. And I'm your host, Selma Farashi. So much of your important work on understanding the behavior of brain tumor cells seems relevant to understanding um, fundamental principles that guide cell migration and CNS patterning. Um, I thought we'd take this opportunity of sitting around this table of a diverse group of neuroscientists to kind of talk through some of what we understand um, right now about the dynamic interplay of cells and microenvironments in the CNS. That sounds good to you. That sounds good. <laughs> okay. Um, so one of your lines of research looks at how some localized elements of the cell's own glycocalyx, which I hope you will explain to us exactly what a glycocalyx is, can, can very specifically modulate particular intracellular molecular signaling pathways, and, and they can do it in a graded and spatially delimited way, which is kind of incredible. Can you say something about some of this, introduce our listeners? I'm sure this is new to some of us. Sure, sure. So um, the term you mentioned, glycocalyx, refers to the... the covering on the cell, so not dealing with the extracellular matrix, but actually the carbohydrate layer that is on all cells, actually. So um, proteoglycans are one type of uh, carbohydrate-containing molecule, but they're certainly not the only one. Um, and so the glycocalyx really includes all of the carbohydrate content attached to the cell membrane in some way, or associated with the cell membrane in some, in some way. And so you can do simple stains um, uh, to look at that carbohydrate content, so where you can measure content of the cell. Um, you can do manipulations to modulate that and show that you can modulate signaling and modulate other aspects of the cell in terms of its behavior by changing that. Um, but the molecules that we've been focusing on are the proteoglycans, which is one type of carbohydrate-containing molecule, which can be expressed on the cell surface, but also can be secreted and uh, found in the extracellular matrix. Um, and so the, the elements of the, when thinking about the glycocalyx, it, people tend to divide it out into thinking about the biomechanical properties that it may serve and also the biochemical properties um, that the glycocalyx may serve. And so when thinking about functions and um, behaviors, it's, it's useful to sort of include both of those components um, because both can be affected perhaps in different directions um, with your modulation. 
Um, so with the heparin sulfate proteoglycans, in particular heparin sulfate proteoglycans, um, there's a long literature, um, both genetic as well as um, uh, chemically modifying uh, the heparin sulfate proteoglycans demonstrating their importance in development. So in the brain, um, during early development, the establishment of morphogen gradients and the regulation of um, ligand-mediating signaling is very important um, for normal development to occur. And so the heparin sulfate uh, proteoglycans help to regulate that process. Um, so they regulate uh, ligand um, uh, the, the establishment of these morphogen gradients, as well as regulate the bioavailability of the ligand. And in some cases, they can also regulate and act as a co-receptor. Um, so for FGFRs, um, they can actually <coughs> act as a co-receptor with the, um, the ligand, the receptor, and the heparin sulfate, moiety. Um, Which means uh, they sort of grab the, the ligand and hold it. Correct. In the right position to the Correct. receptor. Correct. They can also grab ligand and keep it from flying. Exactly. The exactly. And that, so they might do either one of them. They might, they might uh, right. tether it to the receptor, kind of, right. or or be a barrier. Right. And so that that's nicely highlighted by the wind signaling. So with the winds and the studies that were done genetically demonstrated that wind is sequestered from its receptor and then released by the heparin sulfate and then allowed to activate its receptor. That's in contrast to FGF2, which binds to heparin sulfate in combination with binding to its receptor, and that activates the receptor. Um, so, and, that's, and, then, and that's why study of these molecules has been somewhat difficult, because depending on the situation, depending on the abundance of receptors, the ligands that are present, um, and potentially even the structure of the heparin sulfate, you may have different functions. Are there particular categories of receptors that are uh, susceptible to this, or all the ones that neuroscientists normally think about, NMDA receptors and all that kind of stuff? Is that, yeah, that's an interesting that? question. I don't know about NMDA receptors, actually. It's interesting. I don't know that. Well, does the, um, does the nature of the glycocalyx change from development to later on? Mm -hmm. So when cell start signaling and yes, behaving. Yes, and, I mean, are they definitely. So, so studies that have been done comparing, um, so in some of the studies looking at neural stem cells or looking at early progenitor cells, um, the thought is the glycocalyx may be very different in those cells than in and then, a more differentiated cell. Because the sort of function, I guess, is determined. If you're thinking it's, that it might go away, I think that isn't. But it's, I, think I mean, that isn't in the cards. It's yeah, still, so when cells are migrating, what, what, what do you imagine would be like the gross differences between the glycocalyx of a cell that's in a sort of proliferative migratory type of space versus one that's sitting around, you know, moving receptors around away to and from synapses? Like, what the, what's the thoughts? About in terms that? of the structure of that or in terms of the content? Yeah, how much how much of that is sort of glycocalyx mediated? Or like, how much should we be thinking about that when we think about synaptic right. Right. Uh, events? Yeah, and extra synaptic events. Extra synaptic. I think extra. Yeah, yeah. The synapse powdered with glycogen. Yes, it's like loaded with it. That's right. And I don't know. Nobody ever says too much, or most of the things I ever don't really say too much about it. So if you disrupt the extracellular matrix, receptors tend to diffuse out, right? And the cells. Wait, but now we're talking about extracellular matrix. Well, but I'm jumping to what I know. Uh, so I would suppose a similar thing, yeah. As we all do. Uh, I rarely do. But um, what happens is that you, you, if you disrupt, right, uh, amper receptors tend to diffuse out, and uh, there, it's more difficult to keep. Um, so we normally you, think the receptors being tethered on the cytoplasmic side, but they can also be... Mm -hmm. uh, they could be colliding. Uh, um, connected by scaffolding things that exist. You could be the image that is uh, some kind of uh, phosphorylation event, or it could be just uh, mechanical, uh, right? 
Um, so that so gets back to the mechanical function that right, you were just right. saying. Uh, exists, so but you haven't explained it. Yeah. Right, exactly. Oh. <laughs> so, I mean, with those amperoreceptors, then, is it when they've disrupted the entire matrix or disrupted certain components of that matrix? That I don't remember the the, the 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 details. I mean, it's, it's been it's been a while, but um, um, let's assume that it's all of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, because then that's interesting in terms of the specificity of that, and and, and whether it's a primary or a secondary effect, right? Because the the oftentimes there's um, cross linking that occurs in the, in the exercise or matrix, and so that may be holding together components. So there's an interesting study um, in the retina recently where they. Um, looked at ablation uh, genetically of the biosynthesis of both HS and CS. And they were able to do that because they hit an enzyme which was very early in the biosynthetic pathway. And then using other enzymes, such as heparinase 1, 2, 3, or chondroitinase ABC, they could then eliminate just heparin sulfate or just chondroitin sulfate. And in that study, they showed that the migration of the astrocytes in the retina was actually dependent on either HS or CS but either one seemed to be able to compensate for loss of the other. So if they just got rid of one or just got rid of the other, the, the, the defect was much um, was not really apparent. But if they were able to knock out both, they had a dramatic effect <coughs> on astrocyte migration in the retina. Um, sort of illustrating, because I think constantly within, um, you always have to think about how much there can be redundancy, and that has affected certainly some of the mouse models that have been done in terms of what's compensating. Um, for the function, um, and then, so in this case, they actually could compensate for each other. And this is in migration, so this has to do with uh, uh, with the molecules that govern migration, or the actual mechanical act. Yeah. So great question. So why? So you have a defect. Uh -huh. So why? And so uh, that was a thought. Was it cell autonomous, and was it because of the astrocyte defect itself? But what they actually found it was a defect in the um, basement membrane. So the laminin was actually laid down differently, and there were gaps in the laminin in the knockout that weren't present in the wild type or weren't present when they got rid of either HS or CS. And so it was, it was a secondary result. So that's why I was asking about whether the amperoreceptors yeah. were primary or secondary, because they were, by taking out the, um, the HS or the CS, you actually changed the formation of the basement membrane, which then affected migration. So it was sort of an indirect effect. Basement membrane, which is legitimately extracellular matrix. Yeah, it's legitimate. Yes. <laughs> Let's see. But, but I also I wanted to hit the multiple proteoglycan sure. aspect because you talked about chondroitin sulfate and heparin sulfate. Right. They're not just two, right? There's lots, but these are sort of the model systems that everybody looks at. So what are I, I wanted to figure out sort of the range. So now we we understand that it it affects. It signaling cascades, which you didn't talk about, sort of uh, molecular pathways that control lots of things about the cell itself. It can it controls the basement membrane, which interacts with the extracellular, which is the inter interaction with the extracellular matrix. What are the other kinds of things that you imagine being involved? And then we're definitely moving to extracellular matrix, for sure. But I just wanted to hit that. In, in terms of other things that proteoglycans can regulate? Yeah, what do we imagine is sort of the repertoire of... Uh, oh, gosh. So so there's there's whole conferences on proteoglycans and on... Um, I was hoping you'd give me like a three-word answer. <laughs> right. But, no, so, I mean, because because the short, answer, the short answer would be every system is involved. <laughs> that would be the one answer. Yeah. Um, it, it, and at every level and in every organ and every system, right? I mean, so the, the, um, 
it's hard to restrict it to a particular phenotype right. or a particular right. function. And um, and that's probably true with many molecules, right? Okay. Um, and so because with some of the proteoglycans, they also have intracellular functions. Um, and some of the enzymes that modify uh, heparin sulfate proteoglycans also seem to have intracellular functions. So then you start expanding beyond perhaps your simple definition of the proteoglycan with the protein core and the, and the gag chain, mm-hmm. but um, getting involved in the Because the protein cores are different. Right, so for um, the heparin sulfate proteoglycan protein cores are different than the chondroitin sulfate protein cores. So a chondroitin sulfate is like NG2 or CSPG4. That's a very common one that we talk about in the brain. It's important in, in progenitor cells. It's important uh, in, in throughout development um, as opposed to some of the heparin sulfate proteoglycans, such as the syndicans or glipican. Glipican is a GPI-linked um, uh, protein, whereas syndicane is a transmembrane protein. So the so the the members of the of the different groups also are very very different because their protein cores are different, their location is different, and their biology and um, potential functions is different. And then on top of that, you layer the, the glycan itself. The gag chain is also different. Um, it can have different lengths. It can have different structures. Um, and so the combination of both of those. Um, Expands your functions beyond right, and so you could cell, can, cell to cell interaction and recognition, cell uh, specific recognition right. is thought to be related to those kinds of things, right? And right. there's per- particular of sequences of sugars that mm-hmm. uh, that become lectin receptors and exactly um, exactly uh, receptor mediated endocytosis. I'm trying to give you a, a little short so list his- of things that. Compatibility stuff is related to this, right? Right. No, a lot of the antibodies we use for cell type specificity um, or lineage are actually how do electrical fields affect this? How do like they're charged? Like they they must be. They must be. Okay, I'll stop now. All right. So, so now moving officially to the extracellular matrix. What uh, can you say something about its properties? I think I want. I need to take a minute for everyone to, our listeners to appreciate kind of the complexity of this environment. Um, sure. Can you say something about that and what sets it up? What's, what are the factors that govern how the UCF is mm. built? It's a good question. Um, okay. So um, it's a very broad question, right? So the, right. so the extracellular matrix, we sort of use it broadly to encompass a number of different entities and a number of different components. And that ECM is defined by the organ and the cell types and what they're producing and what the other local cells in that area are producing. So it, it can be quite heterogeneous. So elements of it, for example, uh, you know, the uh, in- integrins and the glycopro, the, the sort of structure of it. Can you say something for, or let, let's just add that. Sorry, it's kind of broad, sorry. <laughs> but uh, in the brain, you know, in other tissues, we expect to see massive amounts of collagen, for example, in the extracellular matrix. In the brain, we normally don't see massive amounts of collagen. And in fact, the brain extracellular matrix is mostly invisible if it's not stained with something, whereas in other tissues, it's easy to see. So the what's special about the brain's extracellular matrix? I think there was even a time when People entertained the idea that there, there was none. Exactly. Brain. No, that's very true. So for a while, it was thought that there was, or at least it was entertained. Is probably the best way to put it that there was not an extracellular matrix in the brain, um, and that clearly is 
been shown to be false. Um, there's a lot of, um, there is actually a lot of extracellular matrix in the brain. We just don't see it. So in normal H&E, you just don't see it. So it's part of that pink material that you see, um, protonaceous material that you, that you don't really characterize. Um, and so there's a lot of um, hyaluronin in the brain that makes up a large part. Um, there's also a number of proteoglycans that make up the brain. There are collagens. So there are basement membranes, but many of those are associated <coughs> with blood vessels, right? So you have the blood vessels that are within the brain. Um, we know that in certain tumors, you do have upregulation of some of these molecules, and that may contribute to some of the stiffness, um, uh, such as the tenesins. Um, there's cross-linking that occurs in the matrix. So you, you both have protein components, you have carbohydrate components. Um, you also then have cellular components that are embedded or within that matrix. Um, and the composition of that, unlike, so for example, in an epithelial structure like the colon, you have a basement membrane, right? And that, and that has a very defined structure. Um, in the brain, you don't see those types of divisions. You have the blood vessels in their surrounding and supporting cells, but you don't see the same types of um, basement membranes that you see in epithelial organs. Um, so that's a huge difference in terms of the composition of that, and, and I think led to some of the hypotheses that there wasn't an extracellular matrix there um, between cells. So now we, we, I guess we know there, there is now, and how, what are the ways in which cells interact with the components of the extracellular matrix, and sort of, can you dif sort of uh, talk about how the composition of the matrix may govern, for example, in terms of biomechanics and stiffness, this idea of stiffness that you um, may want to introduce. Right. So, um, so one way to make a, a, a extracellular matrix more stiff is to cross-link it. And so there's been some nice studies demonstrating that if you increase cross-linking, you increase stiffness, and that can change the interaction of the cells with that matrix. Um, so in the brain, one can think of the matrix as providing a scaffold. So that's one potential function, right, is a physical, biomechanical um, aspect that the cell can, um, uh, because we know forces have to be transmitted, so in order for a cell to move forward, it needs to exert a force, and there needs to be a corresponding force on that cell, and so the matrix can provide a mechanical support for that kind of movement, um, uh, such as in white matter tracks, where you have movement um, of cells along white matter tracks, there is a force exerted there. Um, and so the matrix provides attachment for that, so attachment to laminins and attachment um, uh, to adhesion molecules. You can also have um, situations, um, uh, I'm trying to think, because um, you're looking for specific examples of where, or I'm not looking for anything. Well, I mean, oh, okay. I, I think, what, at least in synapses, right? I mean, it's, it, some ideas is to preserve the cleft, the, the distance. Yeah, yeah. Because, because synaptic um, transmission depends on diffusion, right? And that's a quadratic problem, right? I mean, you increase it, then the, the, the problem, the, the, the detection of whatever you're throwing out, glutamate, GABA, uh, it's going to get noisier right. and noisier, so that seems to be important um, to keep it there. And that's the idea that that the synapse is surrounded by these uh, Christmas trees, right? Uh, so like the protein and the sugars, and everybody's together. And, right. uh, Stonehenge, I guess. Yeah. Uh. At the neuromuscular <laughs> junction, there's an out and out. Uh, uh, there's a lamina mm -hmm. sitting right in the synapse that holds acetylcholinesterase. 
And so it has a sort of obvious relationship to synaptic function. And people imagine uh, similar kinds of specialized functions for for the extracellular material in the synapse. Right. And the, I don't know that it's really been analyzed in enormous detail. I don't know. I mean, some old theoretical work in terms of, um, and also um, um, kind of diffusion on the membranes, there was this idea of having corals, right? And then um, these large proteins will be there to corral smaller proteins. And uh, if you have, you, there's some evidence that whenever you have a lot of aggregation, these, the, the proteins will stop moving like acetylcholine receptors. So do you think there's a, a, a diffusion path created in the, like, by the... Uh, some people will believe that it's a very nice way, kind of nice pathway. Like Other oh, tubes that lead from where the stuff's released to where it's right. supposed to. Not yeah. some. Well, the, that would make it not uh, diffusion, not quadratic. Uh, that's right. Right. And, right, right. Uh, well, uh, but then you can imagine that has evolved. A thought has evolved from having corals of multiple sizes. Because they are moving, because if, if it is a corral for you or not, if it is not for you, it will look like an obstacle, and then right, then, right. then the thing will go influence the So this is a lot like what you were talking about before with the uh, <laughs> molecules that use the... Right, right. Yes. So localization may uh, be critical for some of these molecules in terms of are they located near uh, RTKs or clathrin-coated pits, or are they, you know where on the membrane are they located? That may dictate their function. So you may have a function that's actually specific to a particular <coughs> location on the cell membrane. Um, right. If you can imagine if the stiffness increases because of cross-linking, then these molecules that, that they uh, are corralling or whatever. I mean, um, I really don't like the term corral, but that's the way it's, it's used. Um, then that that keeps these proteins there, and then you have over signaling or whatever right, 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 uh, right. that might happen. And certainly, right. based on that work that was used with glycan memetics, mm -hmm. where they were able to show that when you f focused the integrin activation to a certain area on the cell membrane, mm -hmm. that did increase signaling. It did increase mm -hmm. um, the response of the cell to that, and so that suggests also that localization on the cell membrane may be key. Yeah. Um, Reminds us what integrin does. Mm, good question. So integrin um, is a molecule which binds, which which the the cell uses, let's say, to bind to elements of the extracellular matrix. Um, and so different integrins and different combinations of integrins will mediate that attachment or that interaction. Um, and so integrins are very important in terms of ability of a cell to, to migrate or to move. They're also very important in terms of the ability of the cell to survive. So we know that in terms of there's various cells that just won't grow non-adherently. And that's because they need that cell contact to grow and proliferate. Um, and so integrins are very, very important for a number of different processes, but certainly important with the cell interacting with. So a lot of the cells you're working with are astrocytes or, right. or transformed astrocytes. Yeah. And astrocytes, uh, extracellular functions are sort of interesting and different. I, I know these... Uh, pericellular uh, baskets, is that what they're called? Nets, oh, okay. pericellular nets, mm -hmm. which are basically stainable with lectin, yeah. and they are created by an astrocyte membrane that's grabbing a cell body, making little holes for the synapses to be in. Mm -hmm. So are, is, are there special properties of, of the extracellular surface of astrocytes mm -hmm. that 
um, that you see. I mean, because you were seeing right, right. how different are the are the uh, the gliomas from regular astrocytes. Hmm. That's a good question. That's a very deep question, right? Of course, that's really when important you to you because you're interested in what makes them a glioma rather right. than a regular astrocyte. Than a regular astrocyte, exactly. And so a big movement in, in cancer biology has been to move back to development and think about how the cancer is recapitulating developmental processes and programs, right? And that's a, been a huge area in terms of thinking about that, and some of that's pulled in the stem cell field in terms of trying to understand progenitor cells and stem cells and how that may contribute. So if you say, if you directly compare then an astrocyte to a, a glioma cell, right? That comparison, what is the, what is the best? First of all, my question to you would be, what is the best comparison? Should we compare it to a neural stem cell or a neural progenitor cell or maybe a glial progenitor cell or maybe an uh, oligodendrocyte progenitor cell? Maybe an OPC might be better. Like, who is the best model to compare to? Um, and so because there's so much publicly available data now, people can do that where they take their data or they take publicly available data from tumors and compare that to some of the data sets that are out there from normal development. Um, and, I, and you can always make some arguments about what age, you know, is it from mouse or is it from human or who is it from? Um, but certainly some of the single cell analysis, so there's a very nice group in um, Boston which has done a number of single cell analysis and there's a number of groups all over the world that are making comparisons, whether it's at the level of methylation or whether it's the level of gene expression in terms of similarities between tumor cells and um, uh, normal cells at any stage of differentiation. And there's some really interesting findings in terms of similarities and differences, right? And so um, I think in, I think the studies vary a bit, and maybe Annie can comment on this, right? Because depending on the, on the study and the way they've done the comparison, um, there are a number of similarities with glial progenitor cells and early um, neural stem cells, but then there's also a lot of differences. Um, and I don't think as a field, right. and I should add to that, that the populations of gliomas are very heterogeneous. Um, and so one has to ask, in that population of cells that you're pulling out of a tumor, who is the most representative or who is sort of the truncal cell that maybe the, the, the tumor is being derived from? Because that would really be the best cell to then compare on one level. On another level, you really just want to look at the bulk, because if you want to understand the, the, the biology of the tumor as a bulk entity, perhaps you don't want to go down to a, a few cells and look at what their, what their gene expression is like. It kind of, so it kind of depends on your question in terms of what they produce. I have, um, so so in, in many of these instances, like in, in, in um, pathologies in the brain, it's very phenotypical, right? So so we're, because it looks like it's moving, like in development, well, let's look at development, and that's fine, but but um, the cells are not moving in a vacuum, right? Although then we don't label them, right? <laughs> I mean, we're labeling some, the cells that we're interested in. Is, is there any um, uh, information about what is, what is, what are the non-tumor uh, uh, cells? What is the expression patterns that might be triggering, and the, and the heterogeneity becomes comes from 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 the rest, right? Not from the cells that within the cells that have the the, the cancer, right? Or develop. Yeah, no. So the, so great question. So the contribution of the non neoplastic cells to yeah. the tumor, and and that's a 
that is a huge and fascinating area. And, and people, where I think people have studied that the most is looking at um, microglia and macrophages and their contribution to the tumor. Um, the contribution of non-neoplastic astrocytes for the tumor has been a bit more difficult to examine. There's some interesting studies demonstrating that um, with Connexin 43, there's actually direct connections between glioma cells and non-neoplastic astrocytes, which is sort of fascinating to think about in terms of that crosstalk um, and how that crosstalk may be modulating the tumor growth and vice versa. Right. Um, th- we know the patients with brain tumors have a number of um, other abnormalities too, and so may some of that, such as seizures and other events, be triggered by the tumor stimulating these non-neoplastic cells. Um, so you kind of have a crosstalk back and forth potentially that may be modulating things. Um, the data with the microglia and macrophages, there's clear evidence in a number of mouse models that the immune at least macrophage microglial response can um, quite dramatically in some cases influence tumor growth and tumor development. Um, The phenotype of those macrophages, um, there's been a number of work looking to see um, how they're skewed in terms of their phenotypic behavior. Um, And and it it appears as though the tumor is able to modulate the microglial response and that in turn is able to modulate on the tumor and its growth in terms of uh, chemokines that are produced and signaling. So I think Certainly there is crosstalk, um, and the extent to that, which that affects the biology in any one patient, I think we don't know, but certainly in our murine models and our studies, we can develop a system where we can show that it's modulating it. I think in terms of how astrocytes and non-neoplastic astrocytes are influencing the tumor, um, there's more to understand, I think, in terms of that crosstalk. Is there an age at which um, many patients get GBM? Yeah, so, I mean, in, in terms of the, uh, that was another aspect of the heterogeneity. So, yes, so there's 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 um, different types of tumors, and they occur at different, it's actually interesting in terms of the peak incidences of different ages, and that's um, uh, really, I think, highlights the potential for different cells of origin in terms of some of these tumors. So, for example, there's a, there's a brain tumor in children. Um, it used to be called diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, and it still is, but it these tend to always have H3K27M mutations. And these tumors develop in a relatively narrow window uh, in um, development. Um, And so they usually are striking children um, less than 10. Um, And it's in a very uh, focal location in the brainstem. That's in contrast to pilocytic astrocytomas, which tend to occur in a, in a different region, so in the cerebellum and in a different age group, as opposed to de novo glioblastoma, which tends to occur in an older age group, often in the um, supratentorial space, um, in the deep white matter and white matter areas. Um, and that is happening in a, um, between most commonly between 55 and 70 or 65 years of age. So well, if you can focus in on a particular place where something... Yeah. always happens. It seems like that would be a powerful no, tool definitely. for figuring out. And that's something that sort of emerged over the last few decades in terms of different data sets that have been put together, is um, you have molecularly distinct age-dependent, location-dependent tumors that are arising, where we used to think, ependymoma is a great, a great example of that, where we used to think of all ependymomas as being the same, but I think the most recent study divided them out into 11 different types of tumors, um, showing, and, and the data was very beautiful, demonstrating that they have different locations, they have different genetic drivers or epigenetic changes, um, and they have different ages that they occur in. Are any of them associated with the places where we know adult neurogenesis is happening? Yeah, so centered in, what would that be, the subventricular zone or the dentate? Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think Andy's work may I try and address that. I mean, so there's been studies. Uh, one problem is that when de novo or uh, primary GBM glioblastoma arises, um, oftentimes patients present with quite large tumors. So in terms of understanding where they really started, it can be very difficult. So uh, you're talking about perhaps a two or three centimeter tumor, and you're trying to guess where in the brain that started. And so that, that part can be very difficult. And then if you think that these cells may be migrating, the genetic lesion or the epigenetic lesions may have occurred in one spot, but then the cell may have also had migrated or moved. Um, so, but there are but there are groups of tumors that have been sort of divided based on imaging into different locations and sort of segregated into where they might occur. Um, I don't think we can really know if that's where they arose. Um, Sounds like we don't have any reason to suspect that adult neurogenesis is any kind of smoking gun. Well, no, but I mean, people, so there's, I'm not sure. So, I mean, there's a number of studies. Certainly you can generate tumors from glial progenitor cells, and we know that glia are proliferating um, in the adult brain. We know they can. Um, and so some people um, have quite nice evidence suggesting that perhaps that glial progenitor cell pool may be a pool for potential tumor cells. Right? That's much more a widespread and ubiquitous right. than the neuronal progenitor. Right, right, right. And so, but, but I think what's, what from the data from a number of different tumors coming out suggests is that there could be 10 different tumor types that maybe we're all calling glioblastoma. Right, and so some may arise from neural stem cells, some may arise from glial progenitor cells, and they might have slightly different alterations and patterns. But in the end, we call them glioblastoma, right? And so it's that heterogeneity, which is important. When you look at the proliferative patterns of these these brain tumors, um, are they are the are the sort of dynamics of it very different from other tumors that you see? Like for example, I mean, I know there are things that are sort of delimited by epithelia and different sort of morphological things, like in kidney or whatever. But in something like uh, the lung, which I would imagine is a pretty homogeneous type tissue at certain ends of it, do you see t- tumor cells proliferating the same way? And if you don't, what is that an indication of? Like, I mean, is that the environment? Is that the fact that these cells are just fundamentally um, the progenitors are just different. They're 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 set up to behave differently. Like, what do you imagine? Is there is there any basis there to think of these cells as very different, different. or the environment very different? Do they behave like other cancers? Because it seems like they don't in a lot of ways. Is that true? Um, I'm not sure that's true. I'm not I'm not sure. So so certainly in, in epithelial tumors, there's a the defining point where they go through the basement membrane and now they become a carcinoma. And before that, they're in situ. Um, and so their proliferation um, is localized, and then it's no longer contained by that basement membrane. Um, the brain is too mushy for that. Yeah, the, the brain, brain is the mushiest <laughs> place. Yeah. <laughs> right, and so we don't have those defining features yeah. that allow us to say, okay, now it's become malignant, or now, right? And so we've constructed over the, de- over the years. Um, Criteria which we define then as, as a tumor being infiltrating, mm-hmm. right? But some tumors um, are These actually are all, uh, um, imaging based criteria. Um, uh, well, they certainly so um, I'm thinking more of the pathologic criteria, but but one could on imaging can also um, characterize it in terms of whether there's um, the types of enhancement and whether it looks like it's infiltrating um, and whether there's edema and that kind of thing. But on a um, on a pathologic basis, looking at the tissue, the 
it's a decision that has to be made. Is it an infiltrative or invasive process? Um, and so that really helps us just in terms of categorizing it. Um, but I don't think it tells us necessarily the biology of that. And in terms of when you're con comparing tumors from different organs, in terms of proliferation rate, you can have... Uh, so, for example, medulloblastoma, it's a type of uh, pediatric brain cancer, and it occurs uh, in the cerebellum. Um, and that can have a proliferation rate of 85%. Similarly, you can have a lung cancer with a proliferation rate of 85%, right? So the for the proliferation rate itself is not the determining factor. Um, yet in, in medulloblastoma, we now know that um, you can divide out the tumors into different subtypes um, based on their methylation, based on their gene expression. And a WINT-driven medulloblastoma, those patients can actually do fairly well. And, and there's even debate in the community as to whether they should be radiated or not or what is the best treatment for those patients. In contrast to a patient that has, there's four groups. There's a WINT, a subsonic hedgehog, and then a group three and a group four. Clearly, we need more information on the group three and group four. But in those, how they have the molecule associated. Yes, yeah. and then, then we can call it that. <laughs> and then we'll figure out how to genate okay. it within that. Um, but those patients that have more aggressive tumors, um, they can do quite poorly, um, despite the treatments we give. And and so, but there's no, but we can't really look at the tumor without the molecular. We can't just look at the tumor and say, oh, this is definitely going to do well, and this is going to definitely do bad. We have to have the molecular input. And so I use that as a comparison, like with the lung cancer. We can't necessarily see, at least on a histologic level, what the differences are. Molecularly, there has to be differences, and there has to be differences in terms of how those cells are interacting. Um but you, but you can't just tell by looking at them, right? There's not something physical. Well, I have one question that is... Uh, Go ahead. Right yes. No <laughs> um, so in a cancer cell, it, the metabolism is kind of devoted to cell division, and, and they're warmer, tumors are warmer. Mm -hmm. um, so is there any indication in, is, or is there any information in pre-cancer patients of high metabolism in the brain or, or yeah. anywhere else in the body. That that is that the, that's the predisposition. Right. But it's just the, the metabolism of, right. the, of right. the of the subject is high. Right, right. So so that that you're really asking a couple different questions, right? Mm -hmm. Because one you're saying is there something intrinsic to the tumor cells, and then is there something intrinsic to the tumor prone cells right. that maybe we could detect in some way? And then is there a way to detect that, mm -hmm. right? And in, in in the skull and through the you know in its location. Mm -hmm. um, those are great questions. I don't know. I don't know. But it's but certainly we know that the metabolism of the tumor cells and, and potentially even of the progenitor cells is critical. Mm -hmm. um, and people are studying various aspects of that. And certainly using different metabolites in the tumor to try and diagnose and follow the disease is critical. And how and we we just don't know how early those events happen, right? So we know um, we know, for for example, with IDH mutations, right? As soon as that mutation occurs and you're now producing 2-hydroxyglutarate um, from alpha-ketoglutarate, that, that dramatically changes things. And we know that even by just adding that chemical, you can change the methylation. So that, that in itself can be, one, is thought to be the earliest event in tumors, and two, there's a number of imaging and, and a number of studies trying to detect that metabolite so that you could use that to follow. Um, but that, I think, is even after what you're talking about. Uh -huh, you're yeah, really uh -huh. talking about even before that. The earliest stages are there changes in metabolism that may predispose a cell to right. develop 
an oncogenic hit. Right. Um, and that I don't know. Uh, no. I don't know. But it'd be a fascinating. I mean, it's yeah. in the. I mean, I guess the best way to test that would be to set up a system where you can abrogate um, metabolism in some way, whether it's. And then you just have to try. Yeah. I guess to yeah. try it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the uh, the cellular. Um, are people doing so? You were mentioning that there are molecular phenotypes associated with specific uh, or yeah. uh, parsing out tumor specificity. Um, are clinicians by chance uh, taking tumors out and then testing in vitro? Um, their molecular properties or potentially drug screening for right. personalized medicine. Yes, yes, and yes. Okay. Yeah, so there's a number of both academic and um, uh, for nonprofit and for-profit uh, initiatives to try and do that, um, where the idea that you could take cells out, you could then culture them briefly in various, in a panel of drugs and do kind of a drug screen acutely almost, um, Yes, people are definitely trying to do that in various ways. Um, I don't, I don't, the, the, we don't, certainly it makes sense, right? And it certainly makes sense that if you can take a tumor out, look at that population of cells and see what they respond to, what inhibitors, what drugs, what pathways are driving them, and then use those molecules in the patients, it seems to make sense, right? It's a nice linear argument that those are the pathways that the <coughs> cells depend on. And so people are trying that. I don't think the data from any of those kinds of clinical studies are out yet. Certainly in the mouse and in some of the model systems, I think there's some really exciting preliminary data. Um, I know some groups um, doing that in medulloblastoma. It looks really exciting. There's other groups doing that in glioblastoma to try and do that. But I don't think anything has come out uh, like clinically to demonstrate that that is efficacious. But certainly people are looking into that. Um, other people may argue that the tumor you've taken out is not what the patient dies of. It is not what, right? And so um, we know from multiple samplings that have been done in GB I'm talking about here, um, the, you can have truncal alterations, but then the tree quickly branches. And so different regions of the tumor appear to have um, very different alterations. And so one, there's been a study out, um, I think it was from a group in South Korea, which is a very nice study looking at multiple sampling of, a sing of, of individual tumors and then doing multiple tumors like that. Um, and they argue that in order to, they, their hypothesis was that in order to really inhibit the tumor growth, they really need to hit the truncal alterations, which kind of makes sense, right? If the other bits or branches in the, or subclones, you really want to hit the, the most truncal of alterations. Um, and so some might argue that if you take out a piece and culture it from region A, if, if, this, if the truncal clone only represents a small fraction of the cells you get, you might pick up a signal that's coming from the subclones, but you may not truly be understanding what is the truncal alteration that the entire tumor will respond to, right? But with surgery, don't they go in and ideally cut out the whole tumor? That would be fantastic. Ideally, yeah. <laughs> right? And ideally, that would be what you do, right? But there's a couple limitations. One is... Um, uh, the, the tumor cells invade, and they invade out really as individual cells. So on imaging, what's usually taken what was usually taken out is the part that's contrast enhancing, um, and so that's certainly abnormal, and that's certainly tumor tissue. But that does not encompass the entirety of the tumor. Um, and in GBM, the tumors most often recur locally, 
and that's because the whole entire tumor, you, you just you can't take it out, right? Because you have a lot of normal structures. You have other structures in the brain which are still right. functioning normally, but there may be tumor cells there. Um, and so you never get, you get a gross total resection, which is what it's called when you're able to remove all of the enhancing. So based on imaging, you're able to remove all the tumor. But that's not actually all the tumor cells. Right, because you have like some that are senescent and just hanging out and... Um, yeah, and also the resolution of our imaging, right? We just can't see them. Um, and they're also in between normal, right? So that neuron may still be functioning and still may be providing some function. Uh, and so then the the decision is, is well, when do you decide to take it out, right? Because that patient's going to have deficits and the more you take out, the more deficits they could potentially have. So these tumors always cross the midline, right? And there's only a couple of ways across the midline for cortically originating tumors, right? I mean, right. is vasculature one of those? Because white matter tracts are the, the only way I know of. Right, I right, right. A lot. Yeah, and so so these tumors, are they're not always bilateral, but certainly they're characteristically spread bilaterally, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so um, uh, they, um, they spread in white matter tracts. They can spread along blood vessels. They can use the structures of the brain to invade. We know that. Um, and certainly spread in the white matter is sort of the characteristic and classic sort of pattern of spread. And so typically when you have a bilateral tumor, you will see you can actually see on imaging, if you find the right sequence, you can find the area where it's actually um, crossing in the anterior commissure or crossing in the thalamus or crossing in the um, corpus callosum. So, okay, there's so many conversations that could sort of emanate from this, but we're, we're not going to get to them. And But thank you for humoring all my crazy questions and no, for talking you. to the group. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us, Joanna Phillips. This is our Podcast. That's great.